We're about to jump into a uh, series this morning, and, uh, and at the end, I've got some pretty um, deep questions for us to go through as well. So I'm going to open in prayer, if I could, um, and, and see if God might not bless this time. So let's pray. Father, uh, would you move in and through us this morning um, with power and and whatever might happen, um, make it to where we would all know that it's from you, it's, it's to you, and that you would get the glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter, it's uh, towards the back, before the book of Revelation, uh, and after the book of Hebrews, these are the letters that we have of Peter the Apostle, and we're going to be reading from chapter 2. There's a, a portion that we'll put on the screen as well, and if you don't have a Bible, maybe you can follow along there, but First Peter chapter 2, and just to give you the context, Peter is grabbing several places from Scripture and trying to build this case that, that this is what was envisioned, that, that God foretold, this is what was prophesied, that that Jesus would become the cornerstone. So the stone, the living stone that was rejected but chosen by God and precious to him becomes the cornerstone. And then you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, to those of you who believe in Jesus, that is, Jesus, the cornerstone, is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So... We're going to get to our main verse in just a second, but this is the context, so it's important to kind of understand what's going on, is that God is doing a work here, and he's laying a a cornerstone. It's what gives the building solidity. We didn't have steel back in the ancient world. I was just reading a book on the building of St. Peter's, and when they laid the cornerstone for that massive building, it was this huge endeavor, and everything is going to be lined off of that. It anchors the building. It keeps the other stones that get set from from shifting in uncertain marshy ground there. St. Peter's was built over kind of very marshy ground. It's where uh, the burial place used to be. The reason they built there is because that's where they believe Peter was, was buried after he was crucified upside down. And so, I mean, that area of Rome used to be outside of the city and kind of swamplandish. And so you're laying this cornerstone so that everything else will be framed up and solid. And this is Jesus. God has brought and laid the cornerstone. Now, that's not the end of it. The purpose is to build a house, a big building, a a temple, if you will, right? And so we, as people, are being built into this living kind of house, this, this living temple, where all of us have a part to play as we come together and, and, and the result is the worship of God or that God's presence could, could dwell in that temple. It's another one of these analogies that, that kind of gives us this idea that we're all necessary. 
We all are a part of the body of Christ. We all are a part of, of becoming what it is that God envisioned and desires to see as he works in the world with us, right? So this is kind of what's going on. And then we get to our verses and it um, succinctly kind of puts it as this. And this, again, is to the New Testament church. Peter's talking to the New Testament believers. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, a chosen people and a holy nation and a royal priesthood, these are things that in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus and in other places, were used to speak of the Israelite people. You're God's chosen people. You've been called out to be a holy nation. The word holy just means set apart. So the, the way it normally is in this world, the common way, you're set apart from that. You're a holy nation. You're set apart unto God for his purposes. And those purposes are that you'd be a royal priesthood, meaning that you worship God, you get to worship God and experience the warmth of that relationship with him. And so you have worship on one hand and you have witness on the other. As a nation, Israel, you, you stand between the worship of, uh, worship of God and the witness to the rest of the world of what it means to be in relationship with God and to be blessed by God. So you stand between worship and witness. The priests, that's, that's the priesthood of that whole nation of Israelites. Within that nation, they had specific people that were priests. And those specific people went to the temple and they got to come close to God and, and experience God more directly than the rest of the Israelites. And they're bringing the sacrifices. And, and in essence, they're the ones that are standing here with the worship of, of God and then mediating that to the rest of the Israelites, the witness of, of a holy God and set apart. That's the role of a specific priest. And so now... Peter is saying to a group of, of Jews and non-Jews that you're now this, a chosen people. God has ordained this church age. He's ordained the body of Christ. He has called you out and chosen you. You are a holy nation. In other words, you're a people group that, that are set apart from the world. You're sons and daughters of God. You're brothers and sisters with each other. You're the fellowship of believers. You're the church. And, and you're a holy nation, so to speak. As an entity, you bear witness to the worship of God. What it means to, to experience the warmth of that relationship, to be blessed by God. And then you're also a royal priesthood. Now, that's a fascinating thing. Um, for much of church history, as the church lost the original languages of the text, as it moved towards Latin as it got institutionalized in the Catholic Church, it, it looked more and more Old Testament than, than New Testament. You didn't have people reading the Bible themselves. They would go to Mass and basically, in a, in a very ceremonial way, connect with God through, through the taking of the elements. But in terms of instruction and understanding what the New Testament says about what it means to be a part of the people of God, for a lot of, of, of history post-early church, that was kind of lost. And so it functioned a lot like an Old Testament thing where you had priests, Catholic priests. 
And they would go and they would be able to have a relationship with God and they would mediate to you. Mediate by either administering uh, the sacraments or by hearing your confession as you went to confession and, and repented of your sins. And they would mediate forgiveness of God to you. And so they stood in this position of worship or closeness to God, intimacy with God, and as witness to, to the rest of the people. And so for most people, he had this kind of um, distance. I believe in God, but God is distant. In fact, a lot of the Mary worship in the Catholic Church was born out of a desire to connect with the mother of Jesus, um, who, who many took to be incredibly relational. Surely she'll understand my sufferings and my pain. Surely she'll be able to have compassion. She can be an advocate for us. Within Catholic theology, Mary is full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Meaning that she has enough grace that she can dispense of some grace to you, like the saints. So praying to them, talking to the saints or to Mary, grew up as, as a logical way to say, hey Mary, can you, can you give me some grace, some of your grace? And, and experience that you had someone that maybe felt a little bit more like an advocate that you could talk to. But so this is a little bit, certainly the, by the time we get to the Renaissance, the distance that exists for your average Catholic people. So when the Reformation came, they came back to this verse and they, they had what they called the priesthood of believers. Meaning that if, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you've become a child of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you were a priest. You get to go directly before the throne of God, uh, as it says in the book of Hebrews. You get to have that intimacy and warmth and relationship with God the Father. You know what it feels like to have his love, to be blessed by him, and you get to go be a witness to the world. You get to mediate between the presence of God, the experience of God, and a world that needs to know that there's a different way to live, and there's a God who loves him. That, that everyone who's a believer is a part of the priesthood. So it's not just the incense in the Catholic Church. It's sitting around a fire and, and sharing the smoke. It's not just the cup of Christ, but it's also having a drink with someone where you can be doing the work of ministry. This is why um, in, in the Reformation, they had this phrase, sole deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And Johann Sebastian Bach, every time he wrote, he wrote as, as a, a part of his worship, believing that the mathematical things that he was using to compose were, were in touch with God's creation, that God was really the creator of this. And he would write SDG at the bottom, meaning to God alone be the glory. In other words, everything you do becomes an extension of uh, your experience of God in the worship and the witness to the world, that, that you um, can glorify God in all you do. What that does is it gets rid of um, the secular sacred distinction. Secular is just a word that means common. Sacred means kind of it's holy or it's set apart, it's spiritual. And in, in the, the, the age of the, re the reformers, this idea was that when you came into a church, you're coming in as a common person. And you're coming into a sacred space with holy people or priests, priests that do that work. But then when you walk out, you go back into a common space again. And the reformers wanted to say, no, there is no common space. And so they were famous for saying that, that even a blacksmith 
if they're doing their work with the gifts God's given them, with a passion in their heart, wanting to do the best work that they can as a reflection of their worship for God, that they're able to do their work to God's glory, even a blacksmith. That that, that horseshoe and the act of, of doing that is sacred. In your job, whether it's dentistry or whether it's teaching or whatever it might be, when you're doing it and you're, you're you're feeling God's pleasure as you do it, that somehow this is your act of worship. If you saw the movie, The, the, the Chariots of Fire, old movie, long, long ago movie, um, there's a, kind of one of the main characters who's a runner and he's a Christian, strong Christian. Uh, and the idea is, uh, I think it's Eric Liddell. Anyone remember? Yeah. So Eric Liddell was, is, is famous, but he was, going to be a missionary to China and he's trying to run and trying to run in these Olympics and he's he's doing this and his sister asks him in the movie what are you doing with this running business aren't you supposed to be in China and the response was 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 in line with kind of this theology his response was God has made me for China but but God has also made me fast and when I run I feel his pleasure and so this idea that there is no secular sacred distinction, running isn't secular. It's, it's really what's going on in your relationship with God and in your heart, your faith, that can take the, the most mundane thing and turn it into an act of worship. And so all of us, if, if we're, we call ourselves Christians, are priests. We're either good ones or we're bad ones, but we're priests nonetheless. We're supposed to stand close to God in worship glorifying him in all we do, and then able to turn and mediate that to the world, bear witness to the fact that there is another way to live and there's a God who loves you. Does that make sense? Now I want to kind of play with that. So uh, let me read just again. We can maybe just keep it on the screen. But you're a, a special possession to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The problem I think we find in contemporary culture, Christian culture, is that we start with a certain pattern to our life. This is, this is kind of the makeup of my life. It's how I've got it structured or ordered. Whatever that, I don't know what that means, but, but that's going to represent how my life is structured or ordered, right? It's structured, it's patterned, and it's ordered. So what's my relationship with God? My relationship with God becomes, kind of in modern Christianity, that I now put God here with an expectation that he's going to make my life work. It's called functionalism. So what I go to God for is a result. I go to him for his utility, I go to him to make my life work. And um, that's what I pray for. God, we have something this week that you need to make work. Um, uh, God, I got a problem. How'd you let that happen? Uh, God, uh, smite that person. <laughs> um, God, you know, we, but, but our prayers are kind of proactive things as if we're in conversation with somebody whose who's primary covenant is to make our life work the life that we've kind of decided for ourselves. And this is a really 
sad thing because it's like this wood on, on, on the stage here. Um, we've, we've got our life ordered in a certain way and, and then we have an expectation that we're going we're gonna to experience the fire and the warmth and the radiance. And so God, how come you can't make this fire up and be remarkable? I want to experience the fullness of your blessing. I want to know you. I want to sense, I want to feel your closeness. I want to see that you're working in my life. I want this beautiful thing to happen. So, so bring it about, God, with what I've got already ordered. Does that make sense? It's functionalism. You know you've made an idol out of God when you treat God like a good luck charm. I was thinking about it last week when I was laying awake in bed uh, talking to God about how we would spend the money if we won the Powerball. Um, and uh, Kilns and Antioch would have benefited greatly. Um, and I probably would have given most of it away, but there was a villa in Tuscany involved. Um, but in the Psalms, we see David cry out to God, created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. When we understand that we're priests that are supposed to be in a dynamic relationship with God where we're sensing that joy of the Lord and we're experiencing that present, presence and, and we cannot help but be charged up for our witness that we're a light to the world, that, that, that this is a matter of the heart. And when we really understand who we're called to be, what, the privilege, what privilege it is to be chosen by God, then we're going to talk to God a lot about our heart. When we pray, we're going to pray a lot about our heart. God, change my heart. Don't, don't let me be a victim. God, that person that, you know, last year I asked you to smite, maybe, maybe just change their heart or help me see how I could change my heart with regard to them. Right? When we understand who we're supposed to be, change my heart. When we don't understand that, it's let my numbers win the, 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 the Powerball because I'll do wonderful things for you, God, with my money. Um, you see the difference? I mean, I mean, I'm really see the difference? I think if we were to be honest, most of us get caught up in the trap of treating God like a, like a rabbit's foot, like a, like a lucky charm. And idolatry, the definition of it is that we worship something less than God. So here's where it gets real subtle. Here's God the Father who's um, scary, it says in the book of Hebrews that God is a consuming fire, that, that God is so scary that like, we got to take that serious. That's where Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, you see in every one of the books, someone comes to Aslan and goes, are you, are you safe? Um, are, you, are you a tame lion? And Aslan never says yes to any of those questions. Uh, are you safe? No, but I'm good. Are you a tame lion? No, um, but I'm true. You know, like this idea that there's a wildness about Aslan, yet it's okay. There's a wildness about God, yet it's a good thing. And so here's the deal. An idol is when we worship something that's, that's not God and less than God. Now, if we have a lucky charm and we call it God, that's where we confuse ourselves and, and, and lead ourselves astray. Because we're using the same name, we act as if, as if 
what we're really seeing and, and thinking about in our minds, this kind of small God that we've got in a box that exists to meet my needs, that, that we think we're actually worshiping God, but we're worshiping some little thing that we've kind of created that we're calling God so that we don't understand that we've made that switch. You can turn a caricature of God into an idol, can't you? So that's functionalism. I want to switch real quick here. Uh, and I want to talk about children and families. Um, because as parents, we, we construct, we help construct what exists in our children's lives. The, the conditions, the environment, their priorities. Heck, we take them where they're going. I've never seen my kids walk across town, right? Like we are in charge of constructing um, what this is, their kind of starting point. Now here's the interesting thing. So I'll just draw it out for you. Typical American child. What's that? Um, I'm really self-conscious because I've been warned not to make geometrical shapes. Um, uh, okay, so typical, uh, so that's 168 hours. It's a full week. Okay, 168 hours is a full week. Now, so that's what, one, uh, what is that, 80, 84 each. So 60, this is sleep, roughly for the average child. Um, this is 40 hours a week in school. Okay, uh, you guys want to know what comes next? What was it? What was it? Um, so it's it's uh, TV at thirty five hours a week. New study that came out in Time Magazine: thirty five hours, thirty five hours uh, for TV. Um, want to know what comes next? It's a tie. You guys already said one, one of them. It's media at 10 hours a week. So games, uh, I don't know how to crosshatch that one. I'm going to leave it blank. Um, so video games is 10. Uh, sports, so practice, Saturday games, uh, 10 hours a week, um, 7 to 10 hours a week, 10 hours a week. And... Now, here's the really interesting thing. Um, we have eating at 7 to 10 hours a week and in-between things at 6 to 10 hours a week, which almost don't fit here, right? Uh, which is kind of like a couple little random things um, that, that fit into this box. I got to crosshatch these somehow. All right, so this all equals the remainder of the 168 hours. That's our kids' life, roughly. And as parents, we pray a functional prayer. So we live a functional faith often, and we pray a functional prayer. God, bless my kids. Let them know the fullness of a relationship with you. I want my, my children to know the joy of the Lord. Please keep them from error, from making wrong decisions so that they won't know the pain that comes 
um, from broken relationship and, and everything else. Uh, no matter what, I just really hope they, they have a faith because I worry about them and their relationship to you. Um, blah, 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 blah. So we, we pray blessing on our kid. God, that our kids would know the joy of the Lord. And, and we pray that and ask God to functionally bring that about on top of this graph, right? The interesting thing is, is where, where in this graph is any kind of deep discipleship? You see, we're being shaped at all times. Adults are and kids are. But to live is to be like a canyon with a river going through it. You're being shaped at all times. And you're, you're either being shaped intentionally or you're being shaped unintentionally. Um, you're being shaped intentionally. You, you know what it is you ought to be being shaped towards and you're making decisions with your time and your energy, what you say yes to, what you say no to, so that it is shaping and patterning yourself to be that kind of person doing those kinds of things. And, and if you're doing it intentionally, chances are you're also praying about it. God, help me as I'm trying to grow into this kind of person. Unintentionally as I'm passive, either with a peer group or in an environment that's just neutral or say with TV, that's just a neutral thing. And all of that has different kinds of effects on me to shape me. But if I'm, I'm being passively shaped, I guarantee you there's nothing the world is going to do to shape discipleship into you. That's, that's a role that we're supposed to do as believers for each other, parents for children, pastors for, for workers in the church or, or lay leaders or whatever it might be, but, uh, or the Holy Spirit in us as we create time and space to be in that dialogue, but active shaping that brings about uh, the Christ-likeness that we want, that, that ultimately leads to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, that we are what we wished one day that we would be because we're intentionalizing that. Like that's, that's intentional shaping. It doesn't happen kind of from this functional relationship. Now, I, hopefully you guys know me enough that I, I don't, I think, I think we parent by two wrong ways of parenting. That's why you've never heard me recommend a parenting book, I don't think. But we parent by either formula or by fate. Formula is you read the latest, greatest parenting book and, and you try to copy what, what that person did. Or you get a grid and a formula and you keep trying to force your kids through this formula and not really realizing that they're unique and it's a unique season and that it's got to be a little bit more dynamic than that and that the Holy Spirit ought to have some voice into how you're trying to do that. So we either do it by formula. Most children's books, parenting books that I've found tend to be formulaic. Or we do it by fate. I just don't know what to do. You know, I've tried. I've tried. I just don't know what to do. You know, God's going to have to do, God's going to have to do something. You know, and, and it's not my fault. I've, I've done a good job as a parent. Never heard, very, very rarely have I heard a parent say they, they haven't done a good job. But I've done a good job. I've done all I can. You know, now it's up to, so we do either f uh, formula or fate. Does that make sense? Uh, and, what I'm saying to you is if you are a priest of the living God, if your children, if you see them as chosen, they're born to you in your household, a Christian household, a covenant household, and as you're trying to grow these kids up as Christians who, who understand that God loves them and have a love for God, you're raising them to be priests. 
to know the worship of God and to bear witness to God. And, and to raise children in that way isn't formula, it's not fate, it's faith. So I'm not going to tell you to homeschool or public school. You know, and by the way, those aren't the only two options. There's private school, there's charter school, there's which public school, there's which charter school, there's which combination of who knows what. There's, there's what you do when you've made a choice on which school, whether to be involved or not be involved, to be on the PTA board or to, or to be in the classroom, to work to get your kid into a certain class that you feel like. It. I mean, there's so many choices here and we, we end up with this false dichotomy of, of homeschool or public school as if we don't have more that we can do or try and bring to that conversation. But whatever it is, there is no right answer I can give you. The right answer is the one that as you, as you discern the different possibilities and put them before God, you say, God, you shape my life. You call me to what I'm supposed to do as an adult or, or with my children. You, you dictate and, and I will follow. If you lead me, I will follow. Even if I don't understand, I'll do it by faith. Even if I don't like it, I'll do it by faith. Faith means I'm doing it because I trust that it's the right thing because God knows better than I do. With sports, there's some of you in here that shouldn't have your kids in sports. There's some of you in here that maybe should. If God made your child athletic and his worship of God is going to be tied to that, then amen. If you're taking your family and spending gobs of time over and above other things you should be doing with regard to their spirituality and your kid isn't going to do an athletic thing at all from the day they turn 19 on, well, then maybe sports isn't what you should be doing. If your prayer for your child is... Let me put it this way. If what's in your heart for your child is, God, I, I, I really would like for my kid to have a, here's the phrase, a good childhood and to be able to do all the things that the other kids do. If that's in your heart, your heart is wrong. If you're raising a priest of the living God, if your child is, is, a, is a, pre, a future priest or a current priest that you're raising up to know God and to bear witness to the world, you're, you're coming out from the world and saying, we're going to think of things differently. And it's not whether their friends are doing it, whether they're even liked by other kids their age, or, or who even knows what's going on there. What really matters is that they, your kids, know why you're doing the things you're doing, why they're doing the things they're doing, why that's what God's leading you into, and what the benefits of that are. There's, there's always something we can celebrate with regard to discipleship. God blesses us when we're in the place of blessing. And we can talk about that with our kids. Why are we doing the things we're doing? Because of this. Here's why. And here's how this plays out the rest of your life. Here's how this affects your character. Here's how it affects your work ethic. Here's how it affects your relationship with your future husband or job. These things we're doing, I know it's not what everyone else is doing, but, but here's why. But I can't go, God, what's really in my heart most for my kid is that they fit in. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? We, we soft pedal it with ourselves and with our friends and with our church communities. We are responsible. We have the privilege of raising kids that we've dedicated to God and said, I want to raise this child to know you. And so whether we're adults or whether we're children, here's the thing. And, and when you ask Pete to bring you wood, 
he usually shows up with wood that has pitch all over it. Um, that's what I've found. Um, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. Someone turn there for me. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Tell me when you're there. Anybody? Go ahead and stand up. Read it really loud. Um, the two verses afterwards. Yeah. you hear that? That was the gospel. That, that in Christ Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. We've been reconciled to God and we have a new life. It's not scattered. Um, it's a new life that's ordered and patterned in such a way that it, that, it, that it worships God and bears witness to God. That God gets to not just try to make work what we've got dialed up, but God is restacking it. When people meet Jesus, they don't stay what they once were. The fishermen from Galilee didn't stay fishermen. The tax collector, Matthew, didn't stay a tax collector. The prostitute certainly didn't stay a prostitute. When they encounter Christ, it changes their life. They come out from where they were and they inherit this blessing and this privilege to be someone that has a ministry in the church, a mission in the world, and understands what it, what it, what it means to glorify God in their life. And we now inherit this, those are the extra verses, this, this ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus, and now we have been given this ministry of reconciliation that as Christians, I get to live a different way in my life with my kids. I, I get to pattern it a certain way that we live differently that way. With this church, that we get to pattern ourselves so that we are a light or a beacon and that we shine and people look at us and go, I want to know what that kind of life is all about because that life is different than what they're living or what they've experienced or what they know about. And we begin to let God shape our life and our decision-making because we belong to him. We're his royal priesthood. And then this shaping all of a sudden is ordered in such a way that we get to experience the fullness of God, the warmth of his love, the fire, so that when we talk to people, we're like, I can tell you about my relationship with God. It's dynamic. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. That's why I don't sin. Because sin would be trading this experience for a, a lesser, much more destructive experience. I don't white knuckle not sinning. I, I choose my greatest pleasure. It's a lot easier that way. And here's the fire that God brings. So I want to simply ask you, if you've never had a chance to accept that offer that Jesus died for your sins, that, that he could forgive you, that you could be adopted into that family so that you could be a new creation. It's simply by faith 
that understanding that, that we receive the grace of the Lord. And that when we do, he says, we will be like, like cold stones for hearts that now become human flesh hearts that will be made alive and that the Holy Spirit will come and live with us. The Holy Spirit that can guide us, that can hear our prayers and, and begin to move in a way that we know that God lives and that we see his fingerprints in our lives. And if you've never had the, uh, the chance to respond to that or to accept that, I'm going to give you a chance to pray with me in just a second. Um, the other thing I want to just simply say is conversion is an interesting thing that somewhere along the line, we, we get saved. We, we have that relationship. We become a new creation. That's where regeneration takes place. But there's a whole lot of life still to live. And, and oftentimes, it's, it's a whole lot of mini conversions where we get to a point where we've stagnated or we've hit a wall. And we, we have to get to the point where we hit reset and we look at God and say, I'm hol- I've been holding on to, to my own wood that's cast about the, the stage and I need to let that go, and I need to let you reorder my life or pattern my life. I need to be willing to say no to things. I need to be willing to leave things or cut off relationships or seek out new relationships, whatever it might be. I, I need to, to recommit my life to you because the work that you've started in me isn't finished yet, and, it, and it's time that it begin again with renewed energy, and that's called rededicating your life in faith to your faith. You might say, I never really lived into this privilege of what it means to be a, a part of the priesthood of believers. Frankly, I, I might have been living into a victim mentality or I might have been living all sorts of different ways. God, I want to let that go and I want to inherit this other or live into the privilege of that. I'm going to give you a chance to pray that way too. I never do this. If you're new here, this is maybe the second time in 10 years, honestly. Um, so I this is coming from my wrestling this message out in prayer and trying to be faithful. So it's not manipulation. Um, and I don't think that, that my words are magic, but this is a moment, this is an opportunity where we can respond to God. Okay, so I'm gonna pray. If you've never accepted Christ, um, you can sit where you're sitting or you can stand. I want you to, because posture and body language is important, I want you just to put your hands out, which means I'm willing to let go and I'm willing to receive I'm holding nothing back. If you feel like this is a, a part uh, where you need to rededicate your life to the Lord, same thing, you can sit where you're, you're sitting or if your passions, your heart lead you to, you can stand as a declaration. Again, with your hands open, meaning I'm holding nothing back uh, and I'm willing to receive whatever you have for me, Lord. After the service, Pete and I are gonna uh, meet who, anyone who wants to at the book table. Antioch's giving you a free Bible or a book today. If you pray either of those prayers, we're going to meet with you and, and just try and help you get either a Bible or a literature that will allow you to continue whatever this conversation is going forward. And so Pete and I are happy to meet you at the book cart there. But I'm going to pray for us now. And like I said, stand if you would, open your hands or sit where, you're, where, where you are. But again, open your hands. It's incredibly important that our body language demonstrates what's in our heart and in our mind. Father, The words are easy to say that we give everything to you. But please let that be true, even if you have to pry our hands open, that we would hold nothing back, nothing that would keep us from knowing the fullness of relationship that we can have through your Christ, uh, your son, Christ Jesus. Uh, I pray that you would help us conquer the fear that comes with faith, 
We don't know what you're going to do with our life. We don't know what decisions you might make for us, where you might send us or not send us. And, and that, that there's intense fear with that, Father. And we just, just pray now that you would soften that, that you would send your love, that you'd let us know that even if we don't think we're lovable, that you made us, we're your son, we're your daughter, you created us. Whatever has happened in our life or transpired, um, you have the love of a father for a child. Uh, we see that with the, the story of the prodigal son where the father pulls up his robe and runs down the street toward the prodigal. And so if we are the prodigal father, let us uh, sense that embrace and that, that excitement. Um, we know we're sinners. We know that Christ died for our sin and we want that. So renew a right spirit in us. Give us a clean heart. Make us new and, and show us the way forward, uh, we pray. And Father, if we're rededicating our life, that this would be our prayer. That you'd make clear through other people in our life or through coincidences that might happen, that you would make very clear what it is you have for us. That we'd be willing to submit and to obey and to chart a new course, knowing that somehow what you have is better than what the world has. In my own life, in my parenting, let me start with you and your priorities with how I map out time. I want the wood stacked. I want it to be on fire. I want to know the excitement that comes from being a friend of God. I want to be able to be a witness that shines, that's not a hypocrite. I want to be able to call people to a different way of life because I've experienced it and I've tasted it and I know that it is good. Father, I dedicate and rededicate my life to you here now. Take and do with it as you will. We pray in Christ's name, amen.